The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Now among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it. And those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said that it was thunder. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Christ. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Recently, my family and I had the opportunity to see a wonderful movie that some of you may also have seen. It's called All Fly Away. And it's loosely based on a true story about a girl and some geese. As the story unfolds, a 13-year-old girl named Amy stumbles upon a nest of unhatched geese eggs, or goose eggs, geese eggs. And I learned uh, as I watched this film that apparently the first thing that a baby geese, a gosling, (laughs) the first thing a gosling sees when it comes out of its shell, it thinks that it is its mother. Well, this young girl finds herself with these eggs as they hatch and the first thing these geese see is this girl. And as you can imagine, Amy becomes this uh, gaggle of geese, (laughs) the gaggle of goslings' mother. And they go everywhere that Amy goes. They, they come to live with her and her father. They eat together. They sleep together. They take showers together. They eat at the table. They watch TV together and eat popcorn together. 
at first it's just in the house, but then they get big enough so that they need to um, live out in the barn. Now, as this relationship uh, between this uh, young woman and, and her father and these geese begins to take shape, they begin to figure out that um, these birds won't fly unless they're taught how, and more importantly, where they're supposed to fly. Well, when they realize this, the first thing they try to do, Amy and her father, is they start running around and flapping their arms like this, thinking that the geese would get the hint and they'd figure out, well, they're supposed to flap their wings and then fly. When in fact, all they do is they also run around and wave their wings around and they stay ground bound. Well, the tension begins to build and um, the threat of confiscation by the local game warden really makes ups the ante quite a bit and he even threatens not only to confiscate them but to clip their wings so they can't fly at all. Well, Amy and her father uh, put their heads together and, and, and the father, who's a, a tinkerer and an inventor and a hang gliding enthusiast, builds a low-speed motorized hang glider and figures, well, maybe if, um, if these birds see me flying around, they'll, they'll get the hint and they'll, and they'll flap their wings and they'll fly and they'll follow me. Well, they don't. And the next step becomes clear. Amy's father buys a motorized hang glider painted to look like a large goose. And he teaches his daughter to fly it. It's kind of a harrowing process watching this, this young woman learn to fly this, uh, this hang glider. She crashes kind of frighteningly once in particular, but she learns to fly it. And she flies it, and sure enough, as she goes up into the air in this mechanical goose, the geese flap their wings, and they take off, and they follow her. And then the story goes on. She and her father lead this uh, gaggle of geese on a 500-mile journey from where they live in Canada to the spot in North Carolina where if they had been born in the wild, geese in this particular part of Canada would have, would have flown. In the last 30 miles, this girl does on her own because her father crashes. He's fine, but his plane crashes. And she takes the last 30 miles by herself successfully landing these geese in the place where they would have gone had they been uh, normal geese. And in fact, and this is true, they continue to successfully migrate in the way that they were meant to. This teaching worked. Those geese flew and they kept flying for the rest of their lives. It's an amazing story. It's a crazy story. It's a death-defying story. And the build-up to the pivotal realization that these geese will not fly until this human teaches them to fly takes a bit of time. But when that point arrives, it's crystal clear. The time has come. These birds need to fly. And only one person can teach them to fly. And she risks her life to do it. Her hour has come. It's here. Her time, her hour, has arrived. In our gospel today, 
Jesus announces that his hour has come. The time is ripe. And as we know, timing is everything. And the timing for Jesus is now. Jesus declares that his purpose for coming, which is to be glorified so that God may be glorified, is now to be fulfilled. And in the Gospel of John, glorification refers to, particularly to Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. Jesus refers to the time and manner of his death, as well as to its meaning, most importantly, to its meaning. It is a death that brings life. Now, up to this point in the Gospel of John, the reader is reminded over and over that despite all of Jesus' amazing doings and healings and uh, just the way that he is in the world, despite that, despite that people are either wanting to kill him or to crown him king, no one lays hands on him. We're reminded over and over it was not his hour. His time had not yet come. He was not arrested because his time was not yet But today, his hour has come. And the tipping point seems to be the arrival of some Greeks who had come to the festival of Passover earlier, a few lines before in the Gospel. It's clear that they've come to the big festival that Jesus himself is present at, the Passover festival. And these Greeks, which signify the um, far away, people that are far away, Signify that Jesus' message has broken its bounds, that this little piece of land where Jesus has been ministering uh, can no longer hold his message. It's gone out to the ends of the earth, as those people at that time thought of it. The word is out, and the mission has gone out into the world. Truly, his hour has come. Most of us have probably had moments like this in our lives at one time or another. You might call them uh, fish or cut bait moments. And they may or may not seem momentous at the time. I remember when my wife and I were courting, we came to that point in the relationship where we wonder what's going to happen next. And she said to me, how much more information do you need? I have to confess, I didn't clear that with ground control. (laughs) On the other hand, a more momentous example might be um, that moment in the mid-50s when Rosa Parks uh, got on that bus after a long day of working, and she was simply too tired to get up from her seat and go to where she knew she was supposed to go. Now, it's true that she had had a background uh, with the NAACP. She had had some training as to how to stand up for her humanity and her dignity in the face of segregation. But in that moment, all that mattered and all that came to her was, you know, I'm just tired and I'm not going to do it. It was that simple. Her hour had come. She made the decision and she stayed put. The hour comes, and we have to make a decision. For most of us, those decisions are not going to make history. They're decisions that most of us will make quietly 
in ordinary circumstances every day without fanfare, just as part of the way we live our lives. These decisions will involve sacrifice. That decision might be to keep working on a relationship that is kind of difficult and may not seem so promising, but you're going to sacrifice to keep that relationship going. Or it might be to decide to set aside one's own agenda, to really listen to that friend or that family member, or maybe even to that colleague, or maybe even to that person who you might consider an enemy, who you really don't want to listen to. Or it might be to make a tough decision at work that might be risky, might put your job in danger, it might really, really cause trouble for you and for others, but it's the right thing to do. Or it might be to choose a popular Lenten discipline, to choose to refrain from a particular kind of food in a, in a disciplined way so as to experience some little bit of solidarity with those people around the world, those millions and millions and millions of people around the world who experience crushing hunger every day. Or it might be to, on a more mundane level, to fast from gossip. That would be quite a sacrifice, wouldn't it? Or it might be to, especially in this difficult economic context, to decide just to give just a little bit more, just a little bit more, to sacrifice just a little bit more, to support some cause that advances, say, the Millennium Development Goals, or some other worthy cause in our community. The key word is sacrifice. But sacrifice properly understood. Thomas Merton wrote that true sacrifice is not to be measured by how much pain it causes, but by how many barriers it brings down, by how it creates unity. Not that it doesn't involve pain, for sure it will, but that's not the measure of the sacrifice. The measure of the sacrifice is how it brings down barriers, how it brings reconciliation where formerly there was gap, there was distance. What Jesus' life tells us is that this kind of decision, this kind of sacrifice, this kind of decision to die is actually a decision to live. On this last Sunday of Lent, as we follow the course of Jesus' life in the rhythm of the church year, will we choose to embrace the choice of sacrifice in our own hour, in the hours that we'll face later today maybe, or tomorrow, or this week, or in the weeks beyond? It's our turn, our turn, to decide if our hour has come. Every year at this time, we have the opportunity to decide again to follow Jesus into the type of death, of sacrifice that he chooses. When we next meet again on Palm Sunday, next Sunday, we will reenact the shift 
our ancestors in faith took part in that moment when they go from Hosanna, Hosanna, here is our king, let us honor him, to crucify him. Crucify him. In our own lives, will we choose a life that leads to death, that leads to the clipping of wings, that leads to the grounding of hopes, that leads to separation and distance? Or will we choose a death that leads to life, that leads to soaring high, that leads to distance bridged, that leads to freedom and reconciliation? The choice is ours. Amen.